Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9, where we're continuing our study. I, uh, VBS is coming tomorrow. I'm trying not to laugh so much. And Rick, with the, the joke about Mrs. Towsley, um, got my ribs hurting. And so I, you know, it's been... I love, I love you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, they, they say it takes 30 to 60 days for bruised ribs to heal. And I think, well, it's been a week. Why are they not healed already? Um, but so VBS is coming. It's exciting. I am super tickled. We have um, Larry, stop it. Um, we have the kids are going to get a treat. We have three of our six missionary families are in town and are coming up. So tomorrow, our missionaries that are in Beijing are going to be sharing with the kids and then we have on Wednesday, our Mongolian missionaries are coming. And then I think it's on Friday or so, the, the African missionaries are coming. So the kids, by the end of the week, will actually have a better pulse of how we're involved in missions and what being a missionary is all about than, than we as adults, probably. Um, so it's super exciting. Um, on the baptism next week, if you want to be baptized, let me know. I mean, it can be as soon as, you know, right before the dunking goes down. Just grab a little blue trifold. It, the trifold handout in the foyer has all the information on baptism that you need to know. And I'm happy to, to talk with you, to share with you about why we get baptized. So today's story, this is round two for me. Hopefully I worked out some kinks. Um, I had an idea during the last song, but I didn't have time to put it into action. So if we had a third service, I could get it really smooth. Uh, we are in the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, this miracle is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels with the exception of the resurrection of Christ. So all of the authors, that, that all of the guys who wrote the Gospel wrote about this one miracle in particular. And when I go through and you look at all four of the Gospels that record it, these are the spots up here. Um, Luke chapter 9, 10 through 17, where we're looking at today, Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, although I think it's Mark chapter 4. I might have made a typo here. Uh, um, no, it's Mark chapter 6, I think. Double check. I got it right. Up there. Not in my mind. <clears throat> and so when you look at how they recorded it, they each give a sort of a different snapshot. If something was to happen... If I did something real up here or we go outside and I have you guys watch for 10, 15 minutes and something happened and I brought all of you in and I interviewed four different people, you would get four different vantage points of the very same thing. And in studying through this, instead of just reading the, the seven verses that Luke records, I thought, well, if I put them all together and kind of make a story and we'd read it as a story with all of their testimonies kind of merged into one, it would help you guys see what was written about this miracle. And it would avoid me throughout the sermon to keep going, oh, well, Mark said this and Matthew said this and John said this. And so, but the problem now is in my mind, I've got them all kind of, the pictures kind of formed in my brain with all of them. So hopefully I can kind of keep smooth going through it and what we're going to do is we're going to pray to ask god for help and what i've done is i took all of the stories and i sort of like cut and pasted them all together so that it should flow as one story it's all straight out of the bible but it's all of their stories kind of merged in the first service i didn't provide the words the second service i did so you can either just listen to me or you can follow along if you can see that print up there uh, but I'm going to ask God for help because I can already tell I'm off to a, a start here. <laughs> uh, Father, we, we just come before you. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and the life um, that he lived on our behalf. Father, as we come to this, uh, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men, Lord, and upwards of 20,000 people, Father, I pray that you would help our hearts, Lord, to hear your voice in the story it's a very well-known story, Lord, and, and um, there's so much here. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would help this, this miracle that happened this day on the Sea of Galilee, Lord, that it would um, come into three-dimensional for us, that we would be able to, to see and feel and understand what the apostles experienced in this story. Um, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that your spirit would um, 
Lord, help us to see how this applies in our life, that we would walk faithfully with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the feeding of the 5,000, Gunner's Compiled Edition. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. They went away in in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of him. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near and welcoming them. He began to speak to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of any healing and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And he began to teach them many things. Now the day was ending and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. Therefore, Jesus, lifting his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. For he, himself, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone will receive a little. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go, look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. They did so and had them all sit down. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to a mountain by himself alone. That's in John chapter 6. Jesus continues to run away from the people because they're trying to force him into kingship. Later, they catch up to him and ask him some questions. And the story continues, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set a seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for the story. Lord, we pray that as we work through Luke's accounts, aware of the whole story, Lord, as reported by all of the apostles or the four that have gospels, Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, help our minds to wrap around this story, um, that it would come alive to us. Father, help us to see how the story applies to us today. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story, the first thing we see in Luke chapter 10 is that when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. And then from here, they went away to a secluded place called Bethsaida. Remember the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus had pulled together all of the apostles and he said, okay, I want you to go out to all of the villages, preach the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you power so that you can heal the sick 
and do great things. And he sent them out according to Mark two by two. So they go out. They've been out. They took nothing for themselves. Later at the end of Luke, Jesus would reflect back on this on his last night on earth as before the crucifixion. And he said, hey, you guys remember when I sent you out with nothing? Well, things are different now. And he changed how they went out. But on this story, they went out with no money, no food, no place to stay, no plans. They just went out teaching and stayed with whoever allowed them in and taught whoever would listen. And they came back, they find Jesus, and I bet they were like excited because anytime you have a group of guys like this or a group of people in, in groups of like, say there's 12 of them, they go out into six different groups, they come back and they start sharing. Oh, check this out. We have this guy that was sick and man, I just prayed for him and he was healed. Then I was teaching. I don't even know where this teaching came from and people were listening and like just the, the excitement of it all. And in the midst of their reporting, Jesus says, okay, let's get away. Let, let's go to Bethsaida. Now, on the map here, this is where it most likely happened. That's the Sea of Galilee. On the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee is where people believed it happened. But today, if you go to Israel, where they sell all the trinkets for the loaves and fishes, it's on the southwest corner. Scholars think that, you know, that they have it in the wrong place. It's really, there's a little uncertainty of where it actually happened. But the one thing that they do know is that it happened right on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee because the name Bethsaida means like fishing town or something along those lines. Fish is definitely in the name. And so they go there to kind of get a break. They're weary. They're tired. They're ready for a little rest. And at this point in the story, like I really identify with the apostles. It's like, okay, we're going to get some away time, some downtime. And then as they're getting in their boat, as they're trying to get to this place, a little weekend camping trip with Jesus all by themselves to get their souls refreshed, there's like thousands of people. Like it's a foot race, according to Mark. They're, they found out they're sprinting to get there. People are showing up. And it's not like 30 people. It's not like 100 people. We know that there's 5,000 men with the women and children. Some speculate from 10,000 to 20,000 people. Imagine word gets out and you're going to go have a camping trip on Petco Park when nobody's there. And you get there and the place is packed out with fans. Like this is the sort of crowd they're dealing with. If I was the disciples, I'd be like, man, let's go to somewhere else. Let's get away from these people. But Jesus' heart in Luke chapter 11, what he, Luke chapter 9 verse 11, it says that he welcomed them. Like he saw them and his heart for them was like, hey, everybody. Like, how are you doing? Matthew tells us that he, he goes on to say he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. For because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like Jesus sees the people and his heart breaks for them. Their desperation to see him. And in this story, I've kind of I see that first, like we know, like the way the story ends, the people weren't necessarily there because they wanted to worship Jesus as God. He was a means to an end that they could be healed. They could do all of this stuff. And ultimately, the end, Jesus would run away from them saying they got it all wrong because they're trying to make him king over Israel. Get us out from under Roman law. Get us freedom. You can feed us. You can care for us. You can heal us. We want you to take care of us because of what you can do for us. So you guys are missing it. But even him knowing this, he still has compassion on them. He still meets their spiritual needs and their physical needs. He's healing them. He's taking care of the sick. He's providing food for them. And it's just a wonderful picture of who Jesus is. To know that he cares about our, like, our very details of our life and our caring and providing for us, even when we miss the mark with him. And then when I look at Jesus' life throughout the Gospels as these stories unfold, is that people are the priority. Like he always gives precedence to people and caring for them. In ministry, like the longer I walk with Jesus, this is, see, I'm not, I'm totally not like an extrovert type person. Like if I want my batteries recharged, throw me in the mountains in a cabin with no TV, no phone, no anything, just me. And I could, I could literally stay by myself for probably a year and be fine. Like I could do a long time with no people interaction. And that's how my battery kind of recharges. Like I like people and I like y'all and I love hanging out. But 
But being around my wife, my wife, for her to get her like energy level up and around, is like give her people, give her excitement, give her a party, and she'll walk around just recharged. You throw her out in the mountains, at the end of it, she's like, I'm like so like need to get out of here, you know. But I've had to learn, like in ministry, is I'm like, and when I say ministry, I'm not talking as a pastor. I'm just saying as a Christian who says, okay, Lord, here I am. Use me. All the, like, the, people are so distracting. Like, you'll be really busy doing something, and all, all the time I'll get the, and I look out and I see it's the two white shirts with the tie. Or the people with the magazines telling me how to, like, have a, you know, we know who I'm talking about. And I want to like, quick, shut the blinds. Get really quiet. Grace, shut up. Quiet. They won't see us in here. It's a really bad time. But it's always a really bad time. And I've had to learn to go, okay, hey, guys, let's talk. You want to, you want to talk about God? Let's talk. This is, let's pull out your Bibles and let's start talking. And I'm blacklisted a lot of times from them, like, talking to me now. Or you'll be going somewhere and somebody has a need. And I've had to learn, like I've learned that often the distractions with people are the very thing that God's trying to like work with me on. Like we think, oh, God's doing this. I need to do this and this happens. And I think I got to get rid of this, but this is the thing that God wants me to deal with at that time. And so in this story, seeing the disciples come out, they think they're getting weekend getaway. Jesus knows what's going to happen here. He sent them out with nothing, learning to trust upon him. And now he's going to put them in a situation that's far greater than anything they can imagine. With there's just even being like a normal, rational person that loves God. Like, I don't think that their reaction was like overkill. Like that they were like, oh, so of like not faith. Like to feed 20,000 people when you have nothing. Like this is like a legitimate concern. And so they're fresh back from the field. Their hearts are still sensitive to what God's doing. And he's going to basically take their faith and notch it up. He's going to do a work in them by showing them where they lack faith. And in verse 12, I think, is where we are. So he's teaching the people, curing those who need help and healing and cured of sicknesses. And verse 12 goes on to say, Now when the day was ending, and the twelve came and said, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. So the day, literally, like, the word is like that it's bending back, that you're at the end of the day when the sun's about to set or it's set, there's still light there. We know it's springtime because Matthew tells us that this, was, that this was the time of the Passover, which gives us an indicator of how far along Jesus is in his earthly ministry. He'd attended three Passovers. His third Passover is when he went to the cross. He'd already attended one Passover celebration. And so now he's about a year out from the Passover celebration. It's springtime. This desolate place they're dealing with doesn't mean that they're like on sand and rocks and there's nothing there. We're told that there's a huge grass field like the spring. And they all sit in this group of this grass. But the disciples seeing at the day's end are like, Jesus, it's like there's all of these people. We are in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing for them to eat. It's not like there's McDonald's on every corner for them to go get some food. But we got to send them away. There's kids. There's families. And they don't ask him, what are we going to do? They say, no, Jesus, it's time. You got to like end your talking. You got to stop. We got to send them away. And I don't think that their hearts in this were... Like acting of, I think that they were being compassionate. Like, hey, these people got to get home. They got to eat. And then Jesus looks at them. And in Luke, it just says, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. But through the other stories, you can kind of see the, the kind of the drama building up. We read, therefore, Luke or Jesus lifting his eyes up and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? And he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And so Jesus, after they just said this, oh, Philip, you're from around here. Um, where are we going to get food to feed him? Philip's like, did you just hear what we said? We need to send him away because there's no place to get food. And even if we had 200 denarii, that's a year's salary of a working man's wage. 
So it's like being at Petco Park. Whole stadium of people. All the concessions are closed. They're hungry. You've got five bucks in your wallet. Jesus says, how are we going to feed all these people? And I love the fact that like Jesus is showing them like that the assumption is, is that we would just take care of these people. Like that's not how I think. I have a whole group of stadium and I'm thinking about me, my wife, and my two little mouths that I have to feed. Like I'm not thinking about all of them. And Jesus said, well, how are we going to feed them? I'm like, what do you mean? How are we going to feed them? They're going to feed themselves. We're going to send them away. There's no way we can do this. Even if I had a year's wages in my pocket, that's not enough money to give even everybody just a little bit of food. And then he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. So he sends them out. Hey, guys, go out and see how much food is out there. And they go amongst the crowds. They come back. They say five loaves, two fish. They found a little boy. Some little kid there, his mom sent him out with a bag lunch, and he's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And don't start thinking like big old loaf of bread. Think along the lines of, you know, how pitas come in a little bag with like six different pitas. Each pita represents like a loaf of bread. So there's like five little things of pita bread that you'd make one sandwich out of. And when you think fish, don't think swordfish that could feed a village. Think sardine, like a little dried piece of fish. That the kid had. It's, a, it's his bag lunch. It was intended for him to eat. So they come back and they, like I almost, some kid gave us his lunch sack. Jesus this is really great. What are we going to do here? And it's like, come on, Jesus. Are you kidding me? And this little kid here, he gave up his food. You know, bless his little heart. We're going to talk about him later. But then Jesus looks at him and he said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so they did so, and they had him sit down. So they come with the five little loaves of bread, two little fish. Jesus says, go get all the people to sit down, groups of 50 or 100. There's 12 guys. They take care of about 20,000 people. And I just see them like, we can't roll our eyes at Jesus. But what in the world is he thinking? Like, maybe he's having a low blood sugar right now. Maybe he's like losing his mind. Like he needs to get some food. Like what? It reminds me of when I was in the Navy. I was, it was one of my very first platoon. I got in trouble, a lot of trouble over and over and over again in this platoon. And we were in Hawaii and we were out all night and I was out way, way, way too late with all the guys. And I came back in no condition to be shooting the gun. Not proud of this moment, but it was Hawaii and it was like a hundred degrees when we got back. And it was like the humidity was horrible. And we're at the range, and the range where we kept all of our ammunition was like up on a hill, and there was like a 200-yard walk down the hill to where you could shoot the guns. But they told us, you're not allowed to bring the cases of ammunition down to where you shoot the guns. You have to load up up there and then walk down for safety reasons. And so I show up thinking I was okay, but it was obvious I probably reeked horribly and, and was not altogether there. And then my boss basically says, hey, Gunner, I need you to take this like case of 45 ammo down to the range. I'm like, hey, man, we're not allowed, we're not allowed to have that ammo down there. I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, it was hot. I was pretty miserable. And this case of 45 ammo has got to be at least like 80 pounds maybe. Like it's not pleasant to carry it. And he says, no, no, it, it's good. I know what I'm talking about. You go down to the range. So then I like throw this thing on my shoulder. I'm like staggering down the hill dying i think i had to stop a couple times to like shake it out pick it up get right down to the where everybody's shooting i throw down the ammo and the chief looks at me he's like gunner can't have that down there get it out of here that's what i said dennis told me to bring it down there dennis is you know he doesn't know what he's talking about i'm the chief you get back up there i'm like oh man it hurt coming down the hill now i gotta walk it up the hill Come on, people, something can be laughing. It hurts. And, I'm like, and so then I throw this ammo back on my hill, and I'm walking the whole way, like, mumbling on my inside. What does he think he's doing? Why did he make me do this? Who does he think he is? And I get up there, and I throw the ammo down. I look at it, and I said, ammo's not allowed down there, just like I told you. And he looks at me and says, I know. What? You know? Well, Why did you make me walk all the way down there? And he looked at me and he said, are you ever going to show up for an operation like this ever again? No, I'm not. And he's like, you know what? Chief wants to practice his like grappling. 
So you're going to grapple with chief all morning. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. so I got beat up by the chief all morning. And so when I picture these guys, I imagine myself with this ammo walking down the hill. Like, excuse me, people, are you 50 together? Can you, um, can you sit down right here? Oh, good. Are we going to eat? I don't know what's going to happen, but Jesus wants us to sit down in groups of 50 or 100. Can you please pass the word? Like 12 guys to get this many people sit down. Like they don't know what's going on. The people don't real. I don't know that the people know the lack of like food. They know that they don't have food. They don't know what the apostles, maybe, I don't know. And the apostles certainly know how much food is there. They know they're not feeding all of these people. But they go on with it. Hey, can you please sit down? Sit down. Yes, thank you. And it's funny because after this story, Jesus goes, who do the people say that I am? And like, certainly the people are going, what's he going to do now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, sir. Thinking, all I know is we have one bag lunch back there. <laughs> but he's going to do something, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Get them all sit down. And they'd done this. And this little boy who had like enough to feed himself. Like, gives it away. I, I grew up in a family. My, my living conditions were kind of split. My parents were divorced. My dad had some, he, he could provide for us. My mom, on the other hand, couldn't. I got removed. Well, if you guys went unshackled, I got taken away at 12 years old. Before that, when I was with my mom, there were still a number of kids in the family. There's seven kids. I was number six of seven. Food was always one of those things that was, like, guarded, especially when you're the lowest on the pecking order. Whenever I got my food, I would have my food in front of me and a steak knife in the other hand. And the steak knife wasn't for the food. It was for my siblings to keep them away from my food. And so here this kid is with his sack lunch. All these ravenous people take away his food or he gives it to them. And it's such an amazing story of this kid. Like the idea that we can give something that seems so small to God and that God and something that's given to God in faith has an amazing capacity to like to, to expand it and to use it in mighty ways. Like when I look at my life, like I've have a lot of regrets over the stuff I've wasted. Like I've spent like I can't tell you how many nights out drinking to show up with like ATM receipts of like, oh man, I took out that much money. What? Are... And to have no money left in my wallet to like gambling away all kinds of money, like like thousands of dollars gambling, because anything worth doing is worth overdoing, right? That was my philosophy. <laughs> and so, like, I spent, like, all this money, but I always, oh, man, just remorse over, like, things that i just done. Even just buying stuff frivolously. And I was kind of sitting with Anna going over, like, oh, yeah, like, frivolous stuff. And she's like, oh, you mean, like, that back straightener out thing that you bought on the airplane? I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Just like that. You know, you ride in an airplane. You have a good few hours to sit there to peruse their magazine. And, and they always have like the train. It's like as seen on TV stuff. And I often suffer with back problems. Like I have to go to the chiropractor on a regular basis. I heard it and I thought, oh, look at this thing. For two easy payments of nineteen ninety-nine. that's less than 40 bucks. I can get this thing that's going to change my life because it's going to straighten out my spine. It looked good. It was like this little turquoise thing, and it had a little mound, and there's a little ridge about the length of your back. And it said all you had to do is lay on this thing for 10 minutes every day, and it would get your spine in alignment, and you would feel young like you never felt before. And I thought, this is amazing. I got home. I told Anna, I'm like, man, I ordered something. I can't wait for it. Checking the mail. It finally came. And when it came, I laid it out there. I mean, it was like a big deal in the family. Everybody's watching. Well, it wasn't just me and Anna at this point. There were no kids. And so I lay on this thing, and I was like grimacing in pain. She's like, how is it? Oh, it's wonderful. Thinking, man, all I need to do is take two by two, two by fours and lay them on the ground and get the same result. <laughs> totally. Like, oh, man, I regretted that purchase for a long time. Like, it pained me. I didn't want to throw it away because I thought, well, maybe my back will change. If I finally just threw it away. And there are so many things like that. I think, man, I'll buy that. And I'll have, like, just, like, buyer's remorse is buying stuff that you think is going to bring you satisfaction only to do it, to realize it doesn't satisfy, and then you feel guilty. I tell you what, I've never given to Christ. Like, when he's convicted me to give, never regretted ever once giving to God, whether it was small or big. And he, like, stretches, like, the whole giving. 
never once, I can't think of a single time when I've given because I felt like God gave. Like even if it was like a homeless guy on the side of the street that asked for five bucks that I think he's totally scamming me, but I feel convicted that God's saying give, like I just haven't regretted it because I want to be obedient to God. And to see how God uses people's gifts, like this little kid offering his lunch, like this church has changed a lot in four years. And like I remember coming here and then like random checks. Like when you're restarting a church and you don't know how the things, like if it's going to take off, you know, or not, or if it's like you're just like God's teaching you a lesson, but going to the post office is always fun because every now and again a check will show up. Like a check from you don't even know who. Like there's some guy that over the years, he owns a skateboard company. He won't, I have no idea how he knows anything about this church. And there's been like, like, well, I think he sent small checks for him, but for me, it was like, oh, we just needed this because we needed to pay for something, and it came through. And then just other things, like, come, like this church has had so much given to it from people that you guys don't even know, people that are, like, not even anywhere near us. Like, giving what they think is a small amount, but it was what our church needed to, like, get off the ground. And then we, as a church, we give, like, to missionaries, and it's just... But a neat thing to see how God gives us and then we share and then he multiplies it. And that we have a church that is totally like give like this is a church. I don't know who gives what, but I'm so thankful that there's just a spirit of, of giving and wanting to partner with God. Whether it's your money, your time, your efforts, like I'm in so much gratitude and so blessed by this church. Like that this like that we have the lights on and the AC on today. Like some of you might think it's on too low. I like it cold, but uh, you know, there's always like temperature wars back there. But, but like seriously, like when we came here, one of the, like the scariest days for me, like like going to the softball game last weekend to see oh there's softball to see people here, that you know the SDG and E bill they don't just let us go on credit. They like make us like pay the bill every month just like anybody else. And January 6th of 2007, had been here for about six months, was one of the most horrifying Sundays of my entire existence of my life. Like a, a huge opportunity, like for a house here, like the cheapest house in Valley Center. Like we're in the we're in the slum row of Valley Center. It's right around the corner here. So it's Skid Row. Cheapest house in Valley Center. And like the longer I've been around, like bank owned properties, like this whole thing, like there is no movement. And this whole buying our house, like, we kind of stepped out like, Lord, we want to be here. Like, I really want to be committed. But renting, it's like, man, like, 30 days notice. I can beat feet and just pull chalks and leave. Like, I literally backed out of the escrow a couple times. But it was like dealing with a bank, and it was just like going through. Like, and the more I see with bank-owned properties, like, this just doesn't happen. And it was January 6th. Escrow closed on January 16th. And we came to church. And it was me and my family of three. I'd invited two people up from the chapel, our old church. So that's five people. And I think Alberta was here alone. So there were six people, six people that Sunday. And I remember like, and it was cold. And I was like, hey, guys, we're not going to turn on the heat today. Why don't we just kind of bring it in close, let our body heat? Thinking, what in the world am I getting myself into? And to see that people have come and like said, no, I want to like be a part of what God's doing here. And like the fact, it's just it, it, like this. All of this is just amazing to see what God has done through individuals giving little bit of what they have, and then how God blesses that and blesses you in the process. And so that's what this kid did. And then the story continues, kind of verse sixteen. So he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. And broke them. So he has this kid's sack lunch, five pita breads, two little sardines. He looks up to heaven and he says, thank you, God, for this food. There's a great bit of wisdom. When you, you know, no, we don't need to pray for our food. Like often we hear it all the time. So we say, hey, pray for your food. Now, if you're in, maybe you're in like Mexico or like third world country, like there is some reason to pray for the food. Like I, there are circumstances to where it's like, Lord, pray for the food. Pray that my system can do okay with it. But for most of the food, it's a matter of like, 
giving thanks. Like I've heard that there's a Jewish, I haven't been able to verify it, but I heard that like the Jewish people, they would pray after the meal to like the, give thanks after the, like, oh, Lord, thank you for giving this. And so here, Jesus is giving thanks for the food. And I just wish I could see the apostles like, five, I, we just, it took us about 45 minutes to see 20,000 people. Like, that's a lot of people. He's given thanks. Like, I mean, I can't, I can only imagine because I, I project my personality into them. Like the whole, like we're going to have to break it into small pieces. <laughs> like if we really have to make this go a long way, but I don't know what I'm going to do. And so he gives thanks. And then what I love about this, like I focus on the apostles somewhere here, verse 16. So he blessed it and he kept giving to the disciples to set before the people. So they have 12 baskets. So from this, Jesus fills one of their baskets. And that guy like walks it out, like look at this basket going, whoa, like that's impressive. He goes to the first group, dumps it off, goes back, and he gets more from Jesus. So the apostles are the one who, they're seeing this miracle happening. Like Jesus didn't even need that to make bread. Jesus is God. He can create stuff out of nothing. We can only convert stuff that already exists. Like we take stuff, like flour, sugar stuff, and then we mix it all together, and then we, we produce it. Jesus could just say, I want to feed all these people. Boom. Because he's God. And they're seeing this. And I wish at this moment, as they keep going back to get these baskets filled up and walking them out, to see... Like, not only their faces, but, like, what were they thinking? Like, their hearts. Suddenly, it was, like, when my LPO said, I know. I know there's no ammo down there. I knew what I was going to do. Can you imagine their, like, the humility these guys felt? I'm like, wow. He's, he's doing this. And there's a lot of good commentators out there. Like, be careful reading commentaries. Like, there's commentaries that, that are, like, amazing, like, dealing with the historical, like, culture of the time. Like, Barclay is a guy that's great dealing with, like, history. But when you get to the miracles, just delete what he writes. Like, draw lines through it. He says, like, as an example, their, their explanation of the miracles is far greater miracle than, than even what Jesus did. He says that as a boy gave out his lunch... That all the people were suddenly like, they were just hiding all their lunches. And they all just pulled out their lunches all of a sudden and everybody had food. Like, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. Like, he made it out of nothing. And they're going there just blown away. And it says here, um, let me find it, verse 16, all my, bringing all the stories together. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. And this, this word for satisfied, this, this is a word for like when animals gorge on food to describe that gorging. Um, in Revelation, I think it's 1921, talking about the feast, it's the word. The picture that helps me, I kind of described my childhood. But one of them, when I lived in Lake Tahoe, we would, like the big deal was always waiting for the check at the end of the month. And often about once a month, what we would get to do, like starved all month. There's pictures of me as a kid, just skin and bones. The end of the month, once a month, the whole family, we would walk down a couple miles down to Caesar's Palace at North Lake at State Line. And we would go to the buffet and we would eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And I remember like coming back, like with every breath thinking, like, like seriously wondering if I was going to have to go to the doctor because I thought I, like, did some major damage on the inside. I thought my insides were, like, tearing open from, like, what I'd put in them. These people were full. It wasn't like another commentator that said, oh, they got, like, one little crumb and they ate it, and their God had so worked in their heart and mind that they were just in so much gratitude that that little crumb of crackers filled them because they were so thankful. No, they ate and they ate. And then Jesus says, guys, we don't want to waste anything, so go back and get the baskets. And so the guys each have their own basket. They go back and they walk back with totally full baskets sitting at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine how this transformed them? 
It reminded me of a story, a book I'd like to give away. It's a very little-unknown book. It's a evidence not seen. If you were baptized by me at the church, you most likely received a copy of it. Evidence not seen. This lady, Darlene Diabler-Rose, she was a young missionary in Papua New Guinea before World War II. She'd married her husband. They moved out there within weeks World War II started happening, and they told the missionaries, hey, you need, to, you need to make a decision. Like, there's the last boat leaving is leaving, like, tomorrow. And her and her husband had prayed about, like, should we take this boat or not take the boat? And she said, no, they, they, they reached a conclusion that God had called them to Papua New Guinea, and they were going to stay no matter what. And so the boat left, and as it went out, it got hit by a bomb. The whole boat sank. All the, all the missionaries that decided to leave were killed. And they stayed there. They eventually were taken captive. They went to a prison camp, and then eventually she was singled out and went to, to isolation, a, a, another prison camp where she endured many, many beatings. Um, she, you know, the, the rations of food that they were giving were minuscule. She got, um, I forget what it's called, uh, dysentery. dysentery, diarrhea, for those who don't know. She was sick, and she's in this tiny little cell with diarrhea everywhere, no energy, wasting away to about 80 pounds. And she said that there was like a little window where she could go kind of like, she could pull herself up, it would take all of her energy, then she'd collapse and be down on the ground for days uh, to kind of see what was going on there. And uh, before, I'm going to read a little section, but before she got to this, she had just received word that her husband had been killed or died in another camp. And, and uh, some men had come and talked to her. And she was like really worried about how she was supposed to bow because if she didn't bow just correctly before them, she would endure like a horrible beating. And so for like a week or three weeks before this this incident that we're going to read, when she's looking out that window, she could see a lady scurrying across the camp to a hole in the fence. And she didn't know what was going on, but she'd stay up there. And one day she saw they grabbed some bananas and they pulled some bananas in. And if you're starving and you see something, it's like, you know the feeling. Maybe you don't, but but it's like all she wanted was a banana. And so she she tells the story about how she laid in her prison cell in her feces with no energy, just asking, Lord, like, could you just get me one banana? Like, is there any way you could get me one banana? And then as she would start thinking through, she's like, well, if I ask the night guard and they find out about it, they'll shoot him. If I ask so-and-so, they'll kill him. And the three people that she could ask She's like, there's no way. And she finally resolved, Lord, there's no way you can do this. Like, it's, it's impossible for you to provide a banana for me. And then she picks up the story right here. And I tell you, like, it's a hard for me to read this because I'm, like, choking back tears. I read it by myself last night every time I read it. And I'm not, I'm not talking just, like, tears, like, where one, like, your eye kind of wells up. This was, like, streaming down your face tears. And so it takes all of my strength to read this without doing that. So if I pause, it's because I'm trying not to go there. When Mr. Yamanji and the Kemp Tali officers had gone and the guard had closed the door, it hit me. I didn't bow to those men. Oh, Lord, I cried. Why didn't you help me remember? They'll come back and beat me. Lord, please, not back to the hearing room again. Not now, Lord. I can't. I just can't. I heard the guard coming back and I knew he was coming for me. Struggling to my feet, I stood ready to go. He opened the door, walked in, and with a sweeping gesture laid at my feet, bananas, they're yours, he said. And they're all from Mr. Yamanji. I sat down in stunned silence and counted them. There were 92 bananas. In all my spiritual experience, I've never known such shame before my Lord. I pushed the bananas into a corner and wept before him. Lord, forgive me. I'm so ashamed. I couldn't trust you enough to get even one banana for me. Just look at them. There are almost a hundred. In the quiet of the shadowed cell, he answered back within my heart. That's what I delight to do. The exceedingly abundant above anything you ask or think. I knew in those moments that nothing is impossible to my God. After God assured me it was his delight to send those bananas, my heart was solved, 
and it took all the character I possessed not to eat all 92 in one sitting. After months of meager rations of rice porridge, I knew that to gorge could make me deathly ill. So I portioned out so many bananas per day, saving the greener ones for last. This was God's provision, and strength began to flow in my body. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so this lady, like for one banana to see how God provide for her. And I see this story of the multiplication of bread in this lady as a missionary with this one banana, very similar. That these apostles, as they were going out, needed to learn that God could and would provide for them. And as we close, there's three main characters in the story that I think that there's lessons for us. First is Jesus. Jesus is God. Colossians 2 tells us that he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, that we came into existence through his power, that the whole world that we know was by him, that he holds it together, that every breath we take is from him. He's all-powerful, wonderful. Like there's none greater than Christ, and he can create stuff out of nothing. And when I look at the apostles, it's like, They had to sit down, all these people, and they saw the portions. Like Jesus is trying to teach them and us to rely upon him, to trust in him to provide for us. And I know that with me, with like tithing, like, like, you know, like I believe in tithing. I I, I kind of think, I, I would better say that I think tithing is training wheels for giving because I've always found that God wants us to like give and sacrifice more. But in the struggling of like writing the tithe check out, it's like, oh man, like, you know, it's like, that's like, I don't have any bills that are that much. And it's so easy to kind of say, man, I could, you probably use this for something else. But it's, it's like anything that like holds back in my heart. And this isn't like for you that we're not taking an offering when I'm done. I'm speaking to you as a fellow Christian, like just as a guy that God has done a work in my heart is my hesitation of like signing that check is my lack in trusting God to provide. But whenever I've given, he like so provides and has so taken care of me and my family in ways that I can't even begin to explain. And I think looking at our culture and God wanting us to trust in him, our culture, our economy, the way we do things has made it so easy for us not to trust in God. Like when I look at the collapse of our economy, like, well, I could trust in God, but man, I got a credit limit of this much. Why don't I just swipe the card? And then swipe the card again and swipe the card again. And I love David Ramsey. You're like buying stuff for, you're buying stuff you don't need for people you don't like. To to impress people you don't like. And, And so... Like, and I think when you do this with credit cards or when I see, you know, 14-year-old girls who haven't found their husband yet and they go rush, you know, it's a kind of a joke, but like in marriage and like finding the spouse when people kind of take matters into their own hands instead of trusting God to provide. Like when we rush ahead of God, even though he's trying to teach us lessons, when we rush ahead and swipe that card or get ourselves into debt more than we can handle... We're robbing the opportunity God has to show his provision to us. And then when we live this way, it helps us to reevaluate. Like tithing, the biggest thing for me that tithing has taught me over like the last 10 years of being a Christian or 15 years, whatever it's been, is when I start like cutting that check out, it helps me to kind of see the bigger picture because I'm not just, all of it's God's. And he's like, Lord, how do you want me to spend this? And it's forced me to kind of go, okay, that little back thing, like that probably was not the best use of money. And then when I look at this, like the boy, which kind of ties in, like this small, you might not think you have anything to offer God. Like money-wise, and none of us do. Like the reality is none of us do. But as we give and as we say, Lord, here, use this, you have no idea how God will like, use that that gift 
you know, it says that, you know, that saying from, I think it's Proverbs or Psalms, that God owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills. Those cows are owned by people. Those cows are owned by people. And God uses people to share and to help. And when we become, when we start walking with God and we realize that he's the one who provides for us, then like helping people who are in need or when we see an opportunity to give or whatever, there's less fear because it's like, no, God, you're the one who's providing. If you're the one who's calling me to do this, it's amazing what he does. And if you guys get anything from this, I would, I hope that from this story is that we see that God does and wants to provide for you in all ways and turn to him. There's a hymn. It's in song, Psalm, it's not Psalm, in the book number 64 of the, of the hymnal. I read it the last time, but it was too hard to like read a hymnal that's supposed to be meant for singing. But the hymn is God will take care of you. And the hymn talks about like when, when like your world falls apart and like things are happening to you. It says basically turn to God. God will take care of you. Simple message. God will take care of you. Through all the way. Uh, that's where I fade away. And so Father, as we close... Lord, I just confess to you, Lord, that I am such a worrywart. Lord, it's so often that when I look at life and the situations I face, I first measure them, Lord, by my abilities. What am I capable of? How can I do this on my own? Ultimately trying to be comfortable, Lord. And and so, Father, we... um, I just come before you, Lord, and confess that sin of, of uh, my lack of faith. Father, I identify with these apostles, Lord, who your provision didn't even seem like it was an option on the table. Lord, I thank you that the longer that I walk with you, Lord, the more I'm aware of my, um, my needs and my settings and, and just being exposed to other people, Lord to see how you miraculously provide. How you use people, Lord, who are willing to give five loaves of bread and two little fish, Lord, for your cause, to see how you do a work um, through that. And Lord, I pray that you would help us each uh, to be a people of faith, um, that we would trust in you, Lord, that we would seek you alone for our provision when things are tight, which they are in this economy, Lord, when jobs are, are few and our stresses are real and our calling to provide as men, Lord, is there. Um, Father, the only place we have to turn is you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to trust upon you, Lord, to wait upon you, Lord, in your providing through difficult times. We pray, Lord, that as we go through difficulties, Lord, we give you thanks because it's in these difficulties, Lord, that... um, our souls are refined, that we grow closer to you. And so, Lord, I know there's just many people that are going through hard times. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you, that you would speak to them, that you'd encourage them, that you'd comfort them, Lord, through whatever they're going through. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.